The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. So we're in a 13-part study of the life of Christ, and over the last several weeks, we've been doing uh, prayers and discourses from the upper room. Those are discourses and prayers only recorded in John's Gospel. We've basically finished those now. That was in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. So now we're getting back to uh, narrative sections that are actually recorded in all four Gospels. And so we're not only going to finish this section of prophecies in preparation for the death of Christ, we're also, well, we're finishing that larger section, uh, part 11. Next week we'll be moving into part 12. We only have two big sections left. One is the death of Christ, which will include uh, Judas and the soldiers arriving in Gethsemane and the arrest of Jesus. The trials is actually a six-phase trial that Jesus goes through, three by the Jews and three by the Romans. All that will be under the death of Christ. And then we'll have the resurrection and ascension of Christ in part 13. So we're getting close to the end. I don't know. I'll have to go back and look and see when we started. It's gone longer than I thought it would, but to me that's been a good thing. I hope it has been for you as well. Uh, David talked about reviewing and stirring you up by way of reminder. I want to do that with this as well. I'm going to do it a little bit differently than I've done in the past. We've reviewed a lot the events of Passion Week, basically starting on Sunday. I want, I want you to tell me what happens each day as much as you can remember. Don't look at your notes. I know that stuff was sent out this morning, and I didn't think about that. I should ask David to delete that page. But I'll trust you that you won't look at those. So we're just going to go through... Remember, Jesus and other pilgrims that were coming down for Passover arrive probably on Friday or Saturday of the week before. Jesus is staying with his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, in Bethany, um, about two miles from the city of Jerusalem. So we'll start on Sunday. What, what happens? What happens on Sunday? Triumphal entry. Triumphal entry. Anything else? Anything, anything else? That, that's the main thing on Sunday. He's... You know, he goes and has his disciples get a donkey and its colt, and he rides into Jerusalem. The crowds uh, praise him as the Messiah. They've seen all these things he's done over the last three years, particularly the ones that were up in Galilee, and they hail him as the Messiah. That brings conflict with the religious leaders, uh, and that conflict is only going to intensify as the week goes on. So... Jesus is very careful to observe the prophecy in Zechariah and come in riding on a donkey. Uh, He does come into the temple and heal blind and lame that are brought to him. So even during this week, he's still continuing his ministry and and basically showing that he has the power to be the Messiah. And then he goes back to Bethany. And that's his pattern over the first several days. He'll come in from Bethany. He'll be in the temple area, and then he'll return back and spend the night. That changes later in the week, but for the first couple of days, that's what he does. What about on Monday? Okay, curses the fig tree. That's a significant thing he does on Monday. He's going to use a fruitless fig tree to demonstrate the judgment that's going to come on the nation of Israel. Does he not talk to the Gentiles? He doesn't talk, he, he not talks to the Gentiles. That's a good way to say it. The Gentiles come to him wanting to see him, some Greeks is the way that the account describes it. 
and he basically ignores their question. And the significance of that is that he's got to die first before his message goes out to the Gentile world. There's one other thing that he does very significantly on Monday. That's the next day. Yeah. He cleanses the temple. Yeah, remember, that's something he had done at the beginning of his three-year ministry. Obviously, there's a sufficient time for the practices to have come back in vogue, and they're using the temple as a, a means of merchandise, of profit. And so once again, he does that. And you can imagine, again, the kind of trouble he would have gotten into, especially with the religious leaders, when he does something like that. And so what does that bring on Tuesday? He answers questions. It's a very difficult day for him on Tuesday. He comes into the temple again, and all the religious leaders are questioning him and really trying to catch him in something that he's teaching so they can bring him up on charges. They've already made the decision at this point to put him to death. They're just trying to find legitimate grounds, first to bring him before their own system of justice in the Jewish world, and then they weren't allowed to put people to death themselves, so they would have to take him to the Romans. And so you can see part of what he's, part of what they're trying to catch him in is even insubordination to the Roman government. They ask him the question, was it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he answered that masterfully, you know. He said, take out a coin whose face and inscription is on there. And they said, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God of the things that are God's. So even in this sharp questioning on Tuesday, he shows himself wise and uh, he's still he's still able to avoid being charged with anything. Now, later in the day, on Tuesday afternoon, he leaves the temple complex. He goes across the Kidron Valley, and he's up on the Mount of Olives. And they're look, it's a beautiful view of the temple from that point. And the, the disciples are pointing out to him the beauty of the temple. And that's when he predicts both the destruction of Jerusalem and then the things that will precede his second coming. So all that discourse, particularly in Matthew 24 and 25, it's like a mini apocalypse. It's what, what John hears on that day. He ends up fleshing out in even more detail in the book of Revelation. Of course, he's getting visions as he does that, but he's already gotten a, a mini apocalypse in that teaching on the Olivet Discourse. What about Wednesday? It's a silent day with regard to Jesus' activity, but there's something else that we think, and it's hard to say for sure that it happens on Wednesday, but... What is it? That's right. Judas makes arrangements for his betrayal. Um, and we're going to see that, well, I'll, I'll hold off on. What we look at today is uh, the fact that Judas starts leading the religious leaders out there to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then Thursday? Okay, they make arrangements for the Passover, they observe the Passover together, and then these discourses that we've been covering for the last several weeks are what Jesus is teaching them on Thursday. So, you know, they would have started observing Passover together as the sun was going down, and then Thursday is going to morph into Friday morning as they Jesus finishes up the discourses, they again cross the Kidron Valley and head up to Gethsemane, and that's where Jesus is going to be praying when they come out to arrest him. Okay, you guys did good on that. Let's, let's just talk a little bit, and I've shown this before, but this is the city of Jerusalem. This is where the boulder lines here are what we believe would have been the walls 
uh, of the city at the time of Christ. Uh, you can almost see the road system here is similar to our own in Atlanta. This is I-75 North, and this is 85. This is 285, the ring road around the city. It's I-20 East and West. But it's a very practical way of coming into the city by these roads, and you can see the cities that those loads roads lead to and then the walls are punctuated by gates at certain point they're still there today uh, at least one of them is closed up but that's how you come into the city is through these different gates um, what I wanted to point out for the next couple of weeks we're going to be in the city and then again over in the Garden of Gethsemane I just wanted to make sure you knew where those were so we believe, and there seems to be little question about this, you know, sometimes when you look on a map at the location, they'll have a question mark as to whether or not that was the actual site. Even here, uh, they have a couple of different locations, possible locations for where Christ was cru crucified and where he was buried. But people show this place as the likely place of where the upper room uh, observance of both the Passover and the Lord's Supper, and then the, at least where the... Uh, discourses started. Do you remember at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, Arise, let us go from this place. And yet we still have 15 and 16 and 17 where he's teaching them, only recorded in John's gospel once again. But when we get to the end of those accounts and we get back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only then do they cross the Kidron Valley. So there, we talked about the fact there's a couple of possibilities for this. One, they could have even though he said, arise, let us go, they could have hung around for a while longer, and he continued to teach them there in that upper room, or they could have started making their way towards the Kidron Valley, perhaps stopping at the temple. Again, this is conjecture. It's not recorded for us in Scripture. But it is recorded that only after he finished those discourses did they cross the Kidron Valley and go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, does anybody know what that word means? Good. It actually means olive press. And, you know, rather than a garden like we would normally think about it, at least vegetables or flower garden, it was it's a grove of olive trees. And Jesus evidently frequented this place regularly uh, to pray. And this is where he's going to be, again, to pray at this point as well. And it's going to be where he ends up being arrested. Okay. That sets us up for our sections today. Uh, we're going to look at basically just two sections. It's going to be shorter this morning. One is a second prediction of Peter's denial, and then the second is Jesus' three agonizing prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's look first at that second prediction. You remember that it's only been hours earlier that Jesus predicted for the first time that Peter, the head of the disciples, in the sense of being their spokesman, predicted that Jesus predicted that he would deny him. section that um, Jesus is um, being questioned by all the Pharisees and, uh, is the time of the inspection of the lamb is happening at another location at the same time? So I don't know if it's exactly, if those exactly correspond. I've heard the thing that you're talking about where earlier in the week there is an inspection of the lamb to make sure it's without defect before the offering of the sacrifice. But I, I couldn't say whether that exactly matches up. I could see where that would preach really well, you know, because people would say, you know, that this was an instance where 
Jesus as the ultimate lamb was being questioned, but I don't know that you can say There's that. No place in the scripture where it says that. that no, ma'am, I don't think so. That's right. Yeah. Now it is significant that, you know, they they slaughter the lamb on Thursday. Uh, some people have even made the case that the crucifixion itself took place on Thursday. But you've, you've got the slaughtering of the lamb and the observance of Passover at twilight on Thursday. And as the sun goes down, that's really the beginning of Friday, right? There, we, our days begin when the sun comes up. In Jewish um, calendar and timeline, uh, the, the day actually began as the sun went down. So... You can make the argument in that case that it was on the same day that the Lamb was crucified, that Christ himself was crucified. It's only in the hours, the daylight hours of the next day. And those three days would have been the three days prior to that anyways, wouldn't they? Like, the, they like, like they were supposed to examine it for three days to make sure. Then they have, they, they're sure, and then they have their ritual. That's right. So that would have been like... Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday or Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, possibly. But I just, I don't know that there's a, an, at least I don't know that there's a one-to-one -one correspondence that it was on Tuesday that they were inspecting the lamb and that's when they were inspecting Christ, as it were. So, <clears throat> again, Jesus had already predicted uh, Peter's denial. Um, well, let's read the account first and then we'll go to that. So if, you're on, if you have a harmony with you, and I know probably most of you aren't bringing a harmony, but it's really interesting in this case because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about how at this point they go over to the Mount of Olives. Again, this is after the discourses in John's Gospel. But we're going to read from Matthew's account and kind of take note of the other ones in Mark and Luke. Matthew says in chapter 26, beginning in verse 30, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Luke adds at this point, he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. I think custom in the sense of this would often be where he went when he was in the city of Jerusalem. He would spend the night there and pray. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, before the Sermon on the Mount, before he chose the Twelve, he spent all night in prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Now that's a quotation from Zechariah 13.7. Go back and read Zechariah 13.7 in its context. It's talking about really the scattering of the nation, the scattering of the people with the striking down of their shepherd. And I think in that context, it would be talking about their king. But the principle is the same. You strike the leader of the people, you strike the shepherd of the sheep, and the sheep are going to be scattered, and that was what was going to happen this night with the disciples. Certainly they were part of the nation of Israel, and the nation itself was scattered even before Zechariah wrote this. Uh, they've been scattered on multiple occasions. They will again when the Romans overtake them, and then they continue to be scattered all over the world today. There's certainly there have been returns of part of the people back to the Promised Land, but the, there's more Jews living outside of Israel today than there is inside. And ultimately, after they go through the time of trouble during the tribulation period, after they're refined as a people, uh, that's when they'll all be back in the land, and that's when the ones that God has chosen will be uh, redeemed and will recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. Again, the principle here is um, 
Christ himself is going to be arrested and struck down, and the disciples are going to be scattered as a result of that, even though they followed him closely over the last three years. But notice he does again predict the resurrection. After I have been raised, I will go before you in Galilee. And Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. It's like Peter to do that. Uh, he, and then it's interesting to see what's predicted of him. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Now, that's Matthew's account. Uh, Mark says, And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that you yourself, this very night before a cock crows twice, three times deny me. You shall three times deny me. So there's actually a doctrine of cock crowing. Uh, you can look this up in a Bible encyclopedia. The, the day, the Jewish day, was divided up into four watches. Uh, we start at 6 p.m. in the evening, 6 to 9, 9 to 12, 12 to 3, and 3 to 6. And the second of those watches was called cock crowing uh, from 12 to 3 p.m. I'm sorry, from 12 to 3 a.m., and it was the third, not the second. So it's called cock crowing because that was the time normally that roosters crowed, and they would often crow at the beginning of that period and at the end. So, you know, Matthew's referring to that period more generally. He just makes reference to one cock crowing, and Mark is referring to both, the, the beginning and end of the period, but it's between 12 and 3 a.m., so that kind of explains the, the two differences between Matthew and Mark's accounts. <clears throat> the, the main point is that before dawn on Friday, Peter will have denied Jesus on three different occasions. But what does Peter say in response? Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. I mean, Peter's the most outspoken of the 11 at this point, but they were all saying that they weren't going to fall away and that they were willing to die with Christ. All right, so now <clears throat> we've moved across the Kidron Valley. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see this account in <clears throat> Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. I'm going to read my notes here first, and then we'll read through the account. I think that'll work better here. No, I'm not going to do that. Let's read the account. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him, so he has the 11 with him initially, but now he's going to take his, really, his inner circle, right? Peter, James, and John were... Those that knew Christ the best of the 11. Even Christ had an inner circle of friends, and that's why he takes them to this uh, part, this place apart from everybody else. And they first, it seems, were praying together as a group. And then <clears throat> it says, He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. That was how heavy. What was upon him was, it was that distressing to him. It was almost like he was going to die. He tells them, remain here and keep watch with me. So what is it that's causing him this great distress? Can it be the idea that he will be taking on the sins of the world and being separated and 
I think that's exactly what it is. I mean, there's a lot that could contribute to his sorrow at this point, right? One, he knows he's about to face an incredibly difficult physical death. Two, he knows that his disciples, uh, one of them has already betrayed him, and the other ones are all going to fall away. And that had to weigh heavy on him just by itself. But I think the thing that weighed the heaviest is what Kathleen said. He's going to bear the wrath of God for the sins of the world. He's going to be separated from God in a way that he's never experienced before. And we're going to see that it's really hard for him. And I don't think you can pass over this lightly and say, well, he, he knew that he was going to come, try out, come out triumphant on the other end. He did know that. But he also knows that he's got to go through a very difficult period to get there. And I think his prayers to the Father were genuine in that if there was some other way that this could happen, please let it go the other way. But he no sooner says that than he says, but I want it to be your will and not mine. So <clears throat> as bad as the physical pain and assertion by his friends would be, that's not what Jesus dreaded the most. It was the horror of separation from the Father, something he had not known from before the foundation of the world. I mean, he had this intimate relationship with the Father long before his incarnation, and he'd even had it during his incarnation. But now he was going to be completely alone on the cross. Remember, he's going to cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So in advance, he prays, If there's another way for this to happen, uh, please let it happen that way. Verse 39, he went a little beyond them, fell on his face, and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thy wilt. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Again, this is Peter and James and John. And he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? A, a definite rebuke. You know, he's asking them to pray with him. He knows what he's about to go through. They still don't. They don't think he's going to die, even at this point. But before we be too hard on the disciples, we recognize, I mean, this has been a long day for them. Uh, they're now into past midnight, and they're sleepy. They're tired. I don't know how many of you have ever tried to pray all night. Some of you might have had some kind of all-night prayer vigil. I remember we had one uh, when I went to Russia the first time, not long-term, but just for a two-week trip. Uh, as I was getting ready to go back to the airport, our seminary students, we all, well, there were Bible Institute students at that point, got together and we decided we were going to pray all night. It's hard. It's really hard to do. Plus, they were used to him doing that. So they, would they, I mean, they were used to him going off to pray all night, so they probably could easily think, oh, he's going to be at this for a while. Yeah, they could have think that, and it evidently wasn't as hard for Jesus to do as it was for them. But in this case, you know, he's, he's not asking them to pray all night here. He's just asking them to stay with him for an hour and watch and wait. He's also, <clears throat> now, Mark's account brings this into, uh, he, he says something that Matthew doesn't say. He says, in, and this is in Mark 14, verse 38, keep watching and praying. Oh, Matthew does say this too, in 41. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. What was their temptation here? Was it just sleep? Was it, is that all he's talking about? Is he even talking about sleep? I don't or think so. Is he talking more about falling 
away? Yes. I think that's the temptation that he's concerned about is that they're going to fall away. He's already warned them about it, and he wants them to pray so that they will be strengthened through that, uh, through prayer, so that they might not fall away. <clears throat> Verse 40. I mean, when you're in situations where you make up your mind, I'm staying, you can kind of curl up and go to sleep because you're staying. Well, I guess that's what they were thinking. Uh, certainly it didn't come to pass that way. Yeah. But uh, I think at this point, they're just not aware, and they're about to be, but they're not aware that Jesus' hour is finally there and that these soldiers are coming to get him. And he, even though he's encouraging them to, to watch and pray with him, they're not doing it. Because they don't know what Judas did. They don't. They, no they still don't know. What he's up to. No. I mean, you, that to me is a real question because John knew, you know. Jesus told John when they were at supper together, it's the one that I dip the morsel in the sop and give it to. He knew. It, it doesn't seem like he told anybody, but he, he should have known because uh, Christ had told him. Verse 42, <clears throat> he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father... If this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. They were tired. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Or another way to tra translate this, and probably a better way, rather than posing a question, he's saying a little bit sarcastically, Keep on sleeping, therefore, and taking your rest. Behold, the hours at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now, <clears throat> think about the two sides here. On the one hand, they were, it seems, ignorant of the fact that the hour had come. They were falling asleep. Jesus was still awake. And he can hear this group. I mean, it's a huge group of soldiers led by Judas coming up the path to the garden. And his time of prayer in the garden has strengthened him. You know, he's not cowering at this point. He knows what is going to happen. He knows it's the Father's will that it happened this way. That It is his will for this cup to be drunk by Jesus. How do we know that? Okay. Obedience? Is that what you said? That's what I said. Okay. Yeah, like that's how we know that he knew it was God's will because he did it. Okay, so do we have any references in Scripture that would confirm the fact that this was God's will? Either Old Testament or New. He told them he had to be lifted up. Okay, Jesus had told the 12 that, right? And these were 11 of the 12, but I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get you to think of a particular place in the Old Testament that it speaks about this being the Father's will. Good. Yes, Isaiah 53, both of you all got that. That's, Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, in other words, he'll overcome death, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. 
So again, I think this was a genuine plea on Jesus' part on the one hand, but I think he also came to terms with the fact that this is what God had for him, and he knew what was beyond the cross, and he was strengthened through this time of prayer to the point where he was ready. I mean, it, it's clear at this point he's saying, okay, you guys can go ahead and sleep now. There's nothing that you can do to change anything, but the time is now, and my betrayer is at hand, and you could almost feel that he is ready to face this. <clears throat> That's an Old Testament reference that confirms that. There's one in the New Testament after the resurrection, Acts 2, and this is Peter at Pentecost, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You notice how there you have side by side the sovereign plan of God, I mean, it was predetermined before the foundation of the world that this would happen, and yet also the responsibility and maybe culpability is a better way to think about it of these men that put him to, get, to death, both the Jews that called for his death and the Romans that actually did it. So <clears throat> it was God's plan, and of course we understand now much better uh, being after the fact and having all the revelation that we have in Scripture and the epistles that this was the means by which redemption was purchased. <clears throat> okay, that's really all we're going to cover today. It, it was two sections to finish section 11 as uh, prophecies uh, in preparation for the death of Christ, and it's just a good point for us to break. Next week, we'll see the arrival of Judas with the soldiers and now, I mentioned the fact that Jesus went there often to the garden to pray. I think that was what helped Judas to know where he was going to end up. He's already been separated for some time now, but he knew where Jesus was likely to be after the Lord's Supper, and he's going to lead these Roman officials up there to arrest him. Okay, we've asked questions and comments, made comments along the way. Is there any other questions about anything that we've covered this morning or up to this point in the life of Christ? Go ahead, Kathleen. I'm just curious why he would go get the Romans. I mean, so far they've not been able to prove that he broke any of the Romans' laws. Um, they must have had a plan for trying to prove that. They must, so I was read that he was supposed to be the witness against them. Judas? Judas. To yeah. The Rome, and that, the, that um, there was something unusual about them coming out so quickly and at that time of night. You're going to cover all that next time? Well, let's talk about it a little bit now. Uh, why would this be an ideal time for them to arrest Jesus? Well, uh, it's an ideal time for them to arrest him, but why... But why? why would the Romans want to arrest him? Well, I'm going to answer that, but I'm asking this question because first. He's away from the crowds. He's away from the crowds. They can go out and get him. They can even do the first part of his trial at night, which they know they're not allowed to do. And it's just opportune time. And that's what Judas was looking for on the one hand because he'd already made an arrangement with them to do it at a particular time. 
As far as why Judas did what he did, we've talked about this a little bit before, and we really can only speculate. We know that Satan had entered his heart, and that part we don't have to speculate on, that this is what Satan was trying to get. You know, He was trying to have Christ die because he thought that was the thing that would eliminate Christianity. One thing that's a possibility for what was in Judas' heart as well was he's not seeing... Uh, Christ take the throne and he doesn't see him fulfilling what a Messiah should be doing at this point. So I think even Peter might have felt similarly in that, okay, these guys might come against Jesus, but he's going to really show his power at this point. And it's at this point that we're going to end up uh, setting up the kingdom and being on the thrones with Christ and finally being rid of Roman subjugation. Well, there was a lot of people that came out with him. I mean, he had Jewish authorities with him. We will see that part next week. But, you know, Christ asked him, I used to teach in your temple and in your midst every day, and you're coming out as, with all this great group of people as if I'm some kind of, uh, you know, real threat physically. Could they have been, though, just Jewish <clears throat> temple guards and all that because they were going to bring them illegally before the Jewish leadership? Well, let's see what it says here. This is in Matthew 26, verse 47. While we were still speaking, behold, Judas 1 and 12 came up, accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the peoples. I'm thinking like that's... They're thinking right now they only have grounds for a Jewish to disprove him to be the Messiah but they're going to try and find reasons so, to have them executed, which means they have to satisfy the Romans. That's right. They have to come up with they something. They plan on some torture and stuff. Well, they, they do beat him, but they're try, they do have to come up with a charge that they can make and uh, prove to the Romans that they will find accept, acceptable for execution. And, of course, Pilate is very reluctant to do that through the whole thing, but... They end up taking Christ instead of Barabbas. And but at this point, you know, all the pictures out there, they show you all these Roman guards. But I don't see in Scripture where it says Roman guards were involved in this thing. It just looks like it was okay. not a Jewish thing at this point. This is what John's Gospel says in John chapter 18. Okay. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Yeah, so it's a, it's a combination of both the chief priests and the scribes along with a pretty large group of soldiers to arrest. They needed to do anything like this. They had to have the Romans involved so that it didn't look like so it didn't look like a rebellion on their part and stuff. Yeah, and I think they were just doing it to be safe, too, that yeah. they were over, overwhelmed by force and not have any trouble arresting him. Yeah, they didn't, they, they okay, let me put it together. They didn't want, in doing this thing, it, it could be reported to the Roman government like they were doing something wrong. So they, they're letting the Roman government know we are allowed to arrest our own. We can't execute them. So they had the, the 
approval of Rome to start the process. That's right. Okay. And it's going to end up going into even a trial by the Romans. They're going to try Jesus by their own standards, and then when they finally have a charge that they feel like they can make stick, then they go to the Romans. And I don't, I don't think it would have been unusual for the Roman uh, guards. You know, they had the Antonio Fortress that looked over into the temple complex. When necessary, the Romans would intervene into Jewish affairs. So I imagine there was a pretty close relationship between the chief priests and the scribes and the elders with the officials in the Roman government. So they would have seen all these Jewish police gathering to go do something, too. Well, I don't think the 11 would have seen that because no, they're... The, the Roman cohort looking over the temple, they would have seen this. what's going on down in the temple tonight. Well, you're saying if Jesus and the 11 had gone to the no, temple. when the Jews were getting their group together to go to the garden. Okay. They would have amassed inside the temple courtyard. I don't know about yeah. that. Yeah, I don't know where they would have gotten together. I think they went and talked to the Romans and said, look, we've got some business we need to take care of. We want you to go with us to make sure yeah. there's no problem. Yeah. Well, the Romans aren't just bystanders here, right? Because a guy just entered the city, and a crowd went out to meet him, and the Jews have a history of revolt. They have interest. In Very much so. So if you come to them and say, hey, this guy says he's going to be a king and messiah, they're going to be there. Yeah. They're going to be willing to help, for yeah. sure. And that's why he was even in town, right? Because whenever they had, his, his quarters were elsewhere, um, Hutch's Pilate, but whenever they had big uh, feasts, Jewish like festival. They, he came to keep peace. That's right. They're police officers, and they see a crowd, and they, they want to know what's going on. Yes, and they've already, they've already observed what's happened over the last several days, you know, at the temple, uh, with the cleansing of the temple. So... They're very much on their guard. Did you have a question, too? So you know how when Jesus <clears throat> told John who the who Judas was, do you think that he was um, John was didn't like think that it was gonna happen then, and he it's, was gonna like talk to him one on one and like rebuke him? It's hard to say because there's no uh, commentary by John. You know, there's the statement that Jesus tells John. And, and he, Peter had asked John to ask Jesus, so you would think at a minimum that John would tell Peter. And it, there's just no record of that happening. It did, does seem that, like Kathleen was saying earlier, they didn't know what Judas was up to, and they only realized that he had done what he had done later when he was with the Roman cohort. And they also only realized his character as somebody who was pilfering from the treasury box later on as well. So do you think they didn't know it? Betray means? Like, do you think John didn't know what that meant? Like, no, I. He didn't realize it meant betray to the authorities, but. I don't know. Do you think you're a or something? I don't know. It's, it's hard to know what was in John's mind. Uh, but that, I don't think any of them thought that, G, that this was going to happen, that he was going to end up getting arrested and crucified, even though Jesus had told them that multiple times. Because he'd done so many miracles, surely he could defend him. Yep. And it makes sense that Judas. You know, again, this is just conjecture, but it makes sense that he would try to force the issue and say, okay, if he's not going to take the throne on his own, I'm going to try to move him that way. And We saw several times when the people tried to do that. Yes. They tried to force him to yep. be king. That's right. And there were times when they wanted to, you know, like throw him off a cliff or something, and he would just go in their midst somehow. You know Supernaturally, I mean? so yeah. So he could have easily, even without calling down the angels, he could have 
could have escaped, but he chose not to. That's right. Okay. If you want to do some advanced reading for next week, we're in the last part of Matthew 26. We're in the, towards the end of Mark 14, towards the end of Luke 22, and in the first part of John 18. So these are events as we get close to the cross that are recorded for us in all four Gospels. At least most of them. Anything else? Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for the record that we have, even of Jesus' struggle in the garden, uh, of, his, of his knowledge that Peter would betray, uh, would deny him and that Judas would betray him. We, he knew all that up front, and yet he was still committed to your will. Uh, he knew that he was going to suffer your righteous wrath against the sins of the world, and yet he was still committed to carrying this out. And, of course, we are the beneficiaries of that. We who have put our faith in Christ um, recognize that his victory over sin and death has enabled our own. We're so grateful for that. And we're so grateful for, for Christ's example to us of just firm obedience to your will uh, and, and grace even towards his enemies at that point where he's being arrested and taken to the cross and grace towards us for while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. So keep us mindful of these truths as we walk in our respective places through the week. Help us to demonstrate the same kind of grace towards others that might wrong us. Help us to have the same kind of commitment to obedience that Christ had. And we, we recognize that we have this great hope ahead of us, just as Christ did, of resurrection and victory over sin and death, and ultimately new bodies that are, are free even from the presence of indwelling sin. We thank you for, again, for the time we had yesterday and for the time we had together this morning, and we pray that you would just strengthen us for service for another week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.